Let's give it up for this worship team behind me here. Thanks, guys. So rich, so good every single time. Thank you, guys. Well, good morning, everybody. How you doing? Doing all right? Good. Give me a thumbs up if you're doing great. Give me this if you're like, okay. Give me this if you're not doing good. Come on. Where you at? All right. I'll see you guys all over the place. Great. Well, good to see you guys this morning. If I haven't met you, my name is Mitchell. I'm the lead pastor here at Antioch. Thanks for being here this morning. If you are new, there's a few new faces around. Uh, we've got a little Connect card right underneath your seat. If you don't mind, just filling that out. And then right after the service, you can take it to the Connect booth, which is right out those doors, right before you leave. Drop it by. We've got a little gift for you. And we'd love to meet you and say thanks so much for coming. So fill that out. And a couple reminders. Um, one is this month we've been really um, encouraging guys to think about what you're going to do this summer. I know, I'm getting months ahead here. But um, we take seriously the Great Commission that says go and make disciples in all nations. And so what that looks like practically is we pray, we give, and we go. So we pray for the nations of the earth to come and know Jesus. We give generously, and we go. We go on mission trips together, and we carve out time in the summer to make that uh, possible for you guys. And so we'd love to have you guys perfectly consider joining us. So there's a little application there. We're taking a few trips to one's Tijuana, one's New Orleans, and one is in the Middle East. Um, and you want to know that specific location, then you got to apply and we'll tell you. So anyways, uh, just for safety reasons, we don't say the exact location all the time. So anyway, sign up for that. And then also, Maggie already mentioned this, but on December 26th, so two Sundays from now, we will not be meeting in here, but we're going to meet at me and my family's house for a little Christmas brunch if you are in town. So sign up for that. Let us know that you're coming and you can sign up. We'll do potluck style. So sign up to bring something. Be fun. Okay, well, we're about to jump into the message. Um, we started last week on a series that we're titling A Journey of the Unexpected. Everybody say unexpected. So um, Jeremy is going to actually preach this morning. I'm going to invite him up in just a second here, but I'm excited for that. And, um, but yeah, as we, as we, I shared this last week, but as we think about this Christmas story, usually every December we'll look at this Christmas story again. And every year we go back to it. The story doesn't change. But if we approach it with fresh eyes and just anticipation that the Lord wants to speak to us, then we can learn new and fresh things from the story literally every single year. And so something that we noticed this year as we were thinking about the story is there's so many twists and turns. There's so many unexpected things that happen throughout this story. And so through it, we have, I shared this last week, but through it we see this, is that God was faithful to fulfill his promises, he was faithful to provide needs, and he was faithful to answer prayer. And so last week talked about his faithfulness to fulfill his promises, and this week Jeremy's going to talk about God's provision for our needs. So let's give it up for Jeremy Br. I'm going to pass it off to him. Take it away, bro. Thanks. Can you bring this up? Give myself a little space here in case I break out into dance this morning. I'm not planning on it though, so you know. Good morning, church. I'm excited to preach. Uh, like Mitchell said, that is uh, the series that we are in. Last week, he got to share how God is faithful to fulfill his promises. He highlighted some of the different unexpected things in the Christmas story, uh, from miraculous birth to miraculous angelic hosts showing up to the miracle star. Stars don't normally like stay in one spot and move to guide a group of people like crazy and, and last week, Mitchell shared about these miraculous dreams of God showing up and instructing Joseph on what to do and when for the first several years of Jesus' life. Um, and then Mitchell gave a really cool teaching that kind of broke down 
by definition and how we should respond to the different ways of things that we feel God wants to do, one being promises scripturally from God, another being quote-unquote prophetic words or things we just sense that God might be speaking or doing, and then another being like prayers that we are praying, that we are asking God to do. And it was a really helpful instruction, so check out our website. If you missed it last week, um, it's pretty helpful. Beyond the Christmas story, there are plenty of unexpected things that all of us have experienced in our lives. Of course, there's like you got COVID and all the unexpected things there, but I'm sure each of us have very specific, unique, unexpected moments that in some ways either defined your life or just God spoke to you in some way or moved in some way. Uh, A couple from my life that aren't particularly spiritual, but in high school, I was even smaller than I am now, believe it or not. I was freshman year, I was four foot 11, about 95, 99 pounds on a big day. And I decided to quit cross country and join the football team spring of my freshman year and coach the same football coach that coached at uh, Mitchell's high school when he was there. He looked at me and said, don't ever let anyone tell you you're too small to play football, all right? I said, yes, sir, coach, sir. My max on bench was 55 pounds. If any of y'all know how much things weigh, that is not a lot of weight. And it's unexpected that I'm on the team in the first place. Also, I was not just the smallest and weakest. I was also the slowest person on the team. I was slower than the slowest offensive lineman. Ah, it was heartbreaking, guys. But I went to work, okay? (laughs) Plot twist, unexpected. Well, expected is my sophomore year, my first season. I warmed the bench on JV, which at a private high school, that is very bad for a sophomore to do. Um, The only sophomore that did that. But a year and a half in, I've put on some good weight. I'm a little faster, not too fast, but faster. And about to win a weight class, weightlifting record, so I'm not like strong, strong, but pound for pound, like I'm getting kind of strong, and um, experiencing some leadership on the team, and my whole inspiration for doing this, I felt like God wanted me to, pretty much, to learn about him, and I'm getting to lead, I'm like, awesome, God's kingdom is coming, and in summer ball, leading up to my junior year, I'm starting slot with varsity, I'm like, this is crazy, and some of my friends' dads that the friends are good at football are like, Jeremy, you're, com- you're coming along. I'm like, yeah, Mr. Zach's dad believes in me. Let's go. <laughs> and then I hurt my spine. My vertebrae slipped out of place. Could never play football again. Never recorded a single stat. It's like I didn't even exist. I'm like, Wow. That was crazy. On the football team, there is, no, there is nothing to prove that I existed, okay? It was pretty discouraging. Another plot twist. I'm like, but all this favor and what? And, and, but I sought the Lord on what he wanted me to do. And, and we, basically, I ended up spending my upperclassmen years focusing on my faith in ways I wouldn't have because I didn't have the time to. I got to make a disciple my junior year who was a freshman. Another guy made a disciple who was a sophomore when I was a senior. They were both named John, and they're awesome experiences. I went to more church events. I was leading in my high school youth group just because that's all I could do. Like, I couldn't do too much else. And I took BC Calculus my senior year, and I got a five on that exam. Look out. That's eight hours of credit right there. Uh, college math, 
Didn't have to take it. Okay, another unexpected moment is my freshman year of college, my back got healed. What? What? Right? Right? It's a longer story, but pretty much I couldn't do anything athletic without having a significant amount of pain for several days. So I could still do running. I couldn't play football, but I would just have to break for a few days to let my back kind of uh, chill. Someone prays for me, asks God to heal me. I think I'm healed. I go run 11 miles, which is several miles further than I had ever run in my life at like a minute per mile faster than I had ever run even a 5K in my life and no pain at all. And I've been trotting around ever since, guys. It's awesome. And so thank you, Lord, that he moves even in the unexpected things. We don't know what he's going to do, but we know that he will be faithful. Our lives are definitely unexpected journeys. And so is the Christmas story. We're going to dive into some new unexpected elements this morning, but through the midst of it, God is faithful to provide our needs. Someone say, he provides our needs. Amen. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Let me just, quick show of hands. How many of you are just like intuitively like, oh yeah, I definitely know, already for sure agree, God provides our needs. I'm like, I'm there. Okay, cool, cool. Not like something you haven't ever heard before. Um, and so that's helpful for me to gauge. I'm going to share about how he does provide our needs, but I'm also going to kind of dive a little deeper into um, what that provision can look like and how our responses can look before him. And hopefully you walk away feeling like you got something new this morning. And the interesting thing about this topic is the way we in America define need. It's a little tricky, okay, because I think I need a car. I think I need a bed. I think I need coffee at least three times a day. I think I need a constantly full stomach so that I never feel what hunger feels like. I think I need a job that I feel just incredibly excited to go. I skip to work, during work, and from work because I'm so fulfilled. It's like I get paid to become the best me. It's like we have all these needs, right? And I'm not here to poke at our needs, but what I'm sharing is that our perception of our needs can actually like affect our interpretation of God's provision. What we think we need what we think God's going to give us, it influences the way we perceive his provision. But what we need to know is that regardless of how we feel, God is faithful to provide our needs. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 1. The Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew both have awesome nativity accounts. And we're going to focus on Luke this morning. And we're going to see that this dynamic was existent in the nativity story as well, this whole dynamic of what do we expect and what does God provide and what is he doing in the midst of that. It's not just an American phenomenon. Be encouraged. Go to Luke 1, starting in verse uh, 26. We're going to see this initial promise from God uh, that creates some expectation in Mary's heart for his provision. Starting in verse 26. It says, in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. 
Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. What? So an angel physically shows up and says, Greetings, you who are highly favored by God. You have favor with God. And by the way, your son, he's going to take over the throne, and your descendants are going to keep it forever. Like, if I'm Mary, I'm like, we made it, y'all. Like, this is, I'm sure her heart is going all sorts of places in terms of how is she responding, but I know one thing. King David was not broke, okay? He was not broke. Seriously. And in this culture, like, favor with God is associated with abundant financial provision. And so it's, like, not the only thing that she's thinking, but she is expecting at some point there's going to be some financial blessing and breakthrough related to this interaction tied to the fulfillment of what her son accomplishes, which apparently is, the, like, taking over He'll be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. That's King David. Like, his dad is named Joseph, you know? And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. I can only imagine what Mary is envisioning, but we actually, a few verses later, get to see her response uh, to this miraculous interaction. And Starting in verse 46, if you want to uh, keep reading, it says, And Mary said... My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. And he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble, a.k.a. me. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he has said to our fathers. So this is a beautiful response and obviously very worshipful and honoring to God. But also woven in there is like, this is good for me also. You know, she's basically like, God, you're amazing. You saw me in my humble state, and now you're going to exalt me. I'm going to be so blessed that from now on, all generations will talk about how blessed I am. That's how blessed I'm going to be. No more humble state for me. You're giving my family the throne. No more humble state for me. You're filling my hunger with good things. God, you're so good. I love you, Lord. You're amazing. You're faithful to do everything you say you're going to do. Like, Y'all see what I'm saying here? It's not the only thing she's declaring, but man, she knows that blessing is coming and her humble state is about to change forever so significantly that people are going to talk about it for generations. And obviously there's some um, implications of what she would think that that would entail, but I want you all to see the Lord's provision. What was the fulfillment of these words that he spoke 
and you see it at the beginning of chapter 2 in Luke. It says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Man, the Lord saw her humble state, and it was about to get more humble. Get this, I don't know how much y'all know about childbirth, okay, but I've gotten to witness two up close, okay, I've never really quite participated, but there are several things about this, these seven verses that are just incredibly, unimaginably, excruciatingly difficult and painful, and it's no way that that's what she had in mind a few verses earlier. Three things I want to highlight. First, at the point of traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is at least 70 miles if she took the short way, but that would have involved going through Samaria, so it's quite possible she took the long way to avoid the potential of being robbed, like what happened in the story of the Good Samaritan. So at least 70 miles for a woman probably entering her third trimester riding on a donkey or walking a.k.a. hiking, because they're not paved roads. They're going through hills. I don't know how much y'all know, but when you get to late-stage pregnancy, it is not comfortable to sit down for an extended period of time, not even in a really plush chair, especially not in a car, when you could have some bumps, you could have some twists, make it feel uncomfortable. Can you guys imagine at least a week where all day you are slamming against a donkey, Like, I am wincing just imagining this, and this is literally what Mary is going through. Or she's hiking 10-plus miles a day for at least a week. What? But that's not it, okay? Mary is giving birth for the first time in a world without epidurals. And she has to do it away from home in a place that's intended for animals. Like, again, I don't know how much y'all know, but a couple things here. First, the earlier, like the fewer kids you've had, generally speaking, the longer labor you can expect. It's going to take a little longer, be a little harder to push the kid out, okay? Also, probably the most crucial element to a smooth childbirth is like a strong sense of peace and calm. That is like, the. it's like, one example of this would be as you're nearing delivery, there might be this thing called nesting, where the expectant mother is making sure everything is perfect. We've got the nursery set up. We've got the outfits picked out for the next five years. Like, we are ready to have this boy. Just let it happen. I'm ready. I've done everything I need to do. The nest has been nested, okay? There's a reason. For Megan and I, we had Beckham before we moved here. We had Beckham, and then five weeks later, we moved to Arkansas because we were not about to do the reverse of that, move here, and then try to have a kid in a foreign place 
where we don't even know anybody except Mitchell who moved here a few weeks before us. It's like, no, we're going to have our family nearby, and we're going to have a place that Beckham can sleep. Uh, I cannot imagine not only a foreign environment that Mary's having to give birth in, that she doesn't get to set up, but it's, like, intended for animals. Like, it smells like animal. I cannot imagine trying to give birth to your first child in that setting. I also can't imagine giving birth to any child, just to be clear. (laughs) The third thing, Mary has been impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Okay, y'all saw, read, Gabriel physically shows up to Mary. And it's like, you're going to give birth to the King of Israel, the Son of the Most High. It's going to change your life forever. Like, how much more weight would she place on this childbirth and doing the best she can for this child, understanding that this is basically the most important thing she's ever going to do. This, and it really turns out, was the most important thing. Um, And how does she welcome this prophesied king of Israel, son of God, into the world? She places him in a manger. Like, I can't imagine, guys... Doing that to any kid that you just had, especially your first kid, especially your first son in this culture, but the one that an angel shows up and is like, hey, you and I know that this is literally God's child, and the best she can do for him is putting him in a feeding trough. Like, imagine the mom guilt, you know? This is crazy. Mom guilt is so difficult and challenging. I cannot imagine what she's being confronted with that this is the best she can do for King Jesus. Not to mention, why is she in this position? Why is she not at her house with all of her relatives? She's not even with her relatives. Maybe they came there also, but she's with Joseph's relatives. She's at the in-laws' stable. You know, like, why is she here? Because of Caesar. Because of earthly authority decides he wants to count how many people he has. That's the whole reason she's here, which I can only imagine added to her level of frustration and discouragement about this environment. Like, how many of us would have even gone to Bethlehem? Like, angel, confirmation, also my, like, Elizabeth and John the Baptist, and like, what? God's doing crazy things with lots of births around here. Like, obviously something she is supposed to prioritize. Like, if some random person who thinks he governs me when my nation has existed for generations and generations before his empire ever even existed, and we're ruled by our own rulers anyways, he wants to count his people, I'm probably going to feel from the Lord like, I'm pretty sure he can miss too. This is important. Like, God is obviously asking me to do this, and if I submit to this, it is seemingly contradicting what God has very clearly asked me to prioritize. But if she responded that way, Jesus would not be the Messiah that fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies. It actually was God's will for Jesus to be married, and for for Mary to birth Jesus. (laughs) Jesus did not get married, okay? It was God's will. And he used 
Joseph and Mary's submission to Caesar. I'm not even going there, but I just wanted y'all to see that, okay? And the point of this talk is how much more frustrating, how much more painful of a provision from God. And then, if I'm Mary, I'm at least thinking, well, that's probably not what God meant. This is hard now, but the real provision's coming later. Like, this is kind of like... We have the son, but this is too humbling to be what God really meant. But then what happens? The angelic hosts, you can keep reading, they show up to the shepherds, and the shepherds come within the next day or week, I don't know, to this humble state, and they're like praising God and declaring how good he is for this son. Like she can't even be like, I must have missed it, or maybe I'm being punished for something. Like this was God's provision. That was it. And there's still the promise of one day, maybe, he will usurp the throne. No clue how that's going to happen. But the foreseeable future is she is, like, as poor as poor can be, probably, like, depressed forever for how painful of an experience this was that wasn't even, like, the seemingly, like, what God wanted. But it's like, oh, God did want it. But how does she respond? You see, right after the shepherds come and declare those things, verse 19, it says, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. So when everything around her was disappointment, when everything around her was poverty, she was treasuring things in her heart. She was storing treasure. She was finding treasure. So the point is, sometimes God's provision is unexpected in a disappointing way, but he is always faithful to provide our needs. Our role is to see the Lord's provision and to express gratitude rather than being blinded by our own missed expectations. Our role is to see the Lord's provision and express gratitude rather than being blinded by our missed expectations. And in doing so, we form treasures in our heart that go far beyond what our eyes can see. Our church here in northwest Arkansas also has had a very unexpected journey. And in very Christ-like fashion, I might add, because there is no room for us in the inn. (laughs) Literally, if y'all don't know, the Holiday Inn is kicking us out of this place, okay? They are canceling our contract February 13th is the last Sunday that we will meet here. What an amazing opportunity, guys, to gain treasure in our heart by thanking God for his provision, even in the midst of the unexpected. And I know what you're thinking. Well, Jeremy, where are we going to meet on February 20th? We don't know. Maybe your living room. Hopefully not. But, you know, you might get a call here soon. The next point I want to dive into is that the more that we can learn to thank God in the midst of our perceived lack or in the midst of his provision disappointing us, like if we can learn to thank him when we're disappointed in his provision, we will thank him all the more when he provides with unexpected abundance. Thankfulness is like a spiritual muscle. The more you can thank God in the lack, the more you will thank God in the abundance And the goal of our life is to thank God, is to bless God, is to see him and to worship him. 
And I want to dive into some examples from my own life um, before I uh, leave stage here and we go back into worship. Don't get too excited. I got several examples from my own life that I want to share, okay? But I grew up basically loving money. I wanted to be really wealthy. And then I hated money for several reasons. But around like 12, 13, I became super embittered and like money is evil. And I would much, I would like daydream about being homeless one day and how I can't wait to just live in a box and show people how they can still be content. Like literally that was my goal. And then I start like following Jesus uh, more seriously and he kind of brings it full circle in my heart. And I start feeling like I think God is calling me to be like a wealthy believer, which felt like a little scary because I'm like, there are all these verses about you probably shouldn't do that, you know. But they felt to me more like an invitation or a, a challenge of like, do you know how hard this will be? But I think like I was feeling like he was calling me to be a rich Christian. I actually wrote a blog in high school titled, I Have a Dream. Whereas a 16 or 17-year-old, I'm just, I'm going off. It's since taken down, okay? So you don't have to worry about that. But I I have some snippets that I don't know if I really want to get into. But but I was very challenged and determined to just show the world how much I can thank God and how much I can live below my means and give generously and make disciples and live on mission and not just be this like good Christian that I go to church and I obviously give more than other people because I have way more than other people but percentage wise there's nothing inspiring about my generosity and I just want to put my kids in private school and I was like man how lame what if I just live so radically even in wealth that the whole world is like God I don't know if God's real for anyone else but he's definitely real for him like they just know that God is at work And so that's kind of who I am at this point. You know, zealous Jeremy, anticipating all the money that God definitely wants to entrust to me so that I can give him so much glory. Then, as I get into college, I feel like pretty much the Lord starts challenging me in the area of generosity. That it's not just like, hey, one day, once I've made it, I can give so radically. But pretty much just what I said about thankfulness, like if I don't start giving generously now, I'm not going to give generously then. Like, I need to prioritize it. And so I created a budget, and I just had three budget categories, and I just kept track. I wasn't really limiting myself, but I just kept track of my spending. The first category was called Jesus Fundings. The second was called Other Gifts and Giving. The last category was called Self-Spending. And I challenged myself to spend more on the kingdom than I spent on myself. Instead of breaking it down to 15 different you know, house and car and food. I'm like, it's all just for me. I don't want to justify my own, uh, like, perceived needs. I want to give radically for the Lord. And then I was out of money. And so I felt like the Lord encouraged me to think about my possessions. And so did I own anything of value? I could sell that, and I could give that to whatever God wants to do. And so anything that would sell, I would sell. Like, it, if it had a recognizable brand, it was gone from my closet. And then I logged all those sales as income, and then I gave more than half that away. Spring of sophomore year, I had a couple friends going on a mission trip to India. I also had some friends that wanted to go on our church's spring break mission trip. 
that was $350 a person that didn't have money for it. And I realized I had one possession left that for sure had value, and it was a gorgeous, fully upgraded, top of the line, just not even a year and a half old, $3,500 MacBook. And my heart sank. I was like, I journaled, actually, I looked it up. And I, this is the quote that I wrote in my journal. I said, God, are you telling me to sell my computer? <laughs> Immediately, a random verse pops into my mind that I've never read before. So I just look it up. Let's see what it says. Isaiah 45.3. I'm like, all right, let's look it up. It says, I will give you the hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel who summons you by name. I'm like, okay, like earthly treasure, and you want to give me hidden treasure, but I'm still not convinced. I'm like, that's encouraging, Lord, but I need this. This is my laptop. I'm a student. Like, I need to study and work on stuff, Lord. Like, come on. Give me one more verse. Help me out. And so Deuteronomy 13.3 pops into my head. Well, let's see what it says. No clue what it says. Let's see what it says. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. I was like, fine, you can have my laptop. Like, I felt like Lord asked, Jeremy, will you trust me with all your heart? I was like, ooh, yep, you can have the laptop. Then I sold it to someone at a $2,000 discount because they were in ministry and I wanted to bless them too. And then I gave away the money and I had about $200, $300 left that I put towards the first two or three hundred dollars towards the engagement ring, um, but I went the rest of college without a laptop. Took notes on paper, did my studies on campus computer labs, and you know what? My grades went up, guys. They were already decent, but then they were like pretty good. But I was broke, and remember, I'm supposed to be like this wealthy Christian for the Lord, you know? Like this is not working, God. Around that same time, I take comfort in at least I'm debt free, you know, like. I don't have any money to my name, but my parents are paying for my college, which is amazing. I work to cover my, my wants, which is amazing. And I'll just never buy a car or a house, like anything to avoid debt. Like, I'm debt-free from my, I'm debt-free, baby. Like, I'm a Dave Ramsey fan. I'm like, I'm doing my debt-free scream. Like, this is amazing. And then I married Megan, and I inherited over $110,000 of education bills. This was not what I expected. But, of course, I'm thankful I married Megan. Best decision ever. As it came to our financial lives, I was thanking God that we had two stove burners that worked. We had one drawer. Between our bathroom and our kitchen, we had one drawer in our apartment. I thank the Lord for that drawer, because without that one, it would have been very unclear where we should put our silverware. I thanked God for all 140 grocery dollars that between the two of us we had to spend each month. I thanked God that Megan was willing to text me anytime she'd want a dollar black coffee from the campus library, which she only did once or twice a month. But I always said yes. But I thanked the Lord for her humility. And anytime we felt tempted to cling on to money, we knew, ah, we got to give more money away. That was the only solution we knew of how do we loosen our heart's grip on this money thing. In our first two years of marriage, I had a full-time job for one of them, 
the other three years between the two of us, we were both full-time students. And so we were working student worker jobs, random jobs, yard work, whatever. But simultaneously, I still feel very called by the Lord to somehow be a wealthy believer. And I feel in my times with him leading into year two that he's speaking to me about, hey, I want you to prepare to have kids. And I'm like, I, we can't have kids, you know. Also feel like he's saying, hey, I want you to prepare. Start asking me what church planning could look like. I'm like, we can't do those things with all this debt. I also feel like it says, I want you to pray that all your debt would be gone by the end of this year. And I worked a commission job, so I was like, I guess it's possible if I nail some huge clients, but like, like we can't pay our debt off. But I feel like God's like, hey, start praying for these things. I didn't even tell Megan because I'm like, this is going to be so embarrassing when we have 100000 left to go at the end of the year. And so, you know, we, we're going hard, you know, and we had in the first by the end of our first two years, uh, put about 30K into that 110K, living super cheap and working. Um, but we had a long way to go. And then one night our life changed in a dramatic way. Instead of explaining it, I figured I would just play a clip for you guys. It's going to be a little clunky as we uh, drag it over. But I want you guys to see uh, an unexpected financial provision uh, from the Lord that changed life for Megan and I. Okay, I'm going to close out tonight with one more quick testimony. (laughs) School Mitchell right there, old school Mitchell.
and because this room is full of people that love you guys so much. We raised over That really happened, guys. Who provided for our needs? The Lord did. Seriously. In that moment, I was shocked. And I'm still, still so shocked that that actually happened and we actually became debt-free. But what's encouraging for me is that it, nothing has changed about our heart before the Lord. Like, I could have, in that moment, been like, whoa, this is amazing. We're out of debt, for real. Megan's about to graduate. We can move to Houston, both work corporate jobs, no kids, just throw money at the big bucket called investments, and I will be well on my way to rich Christendom. But I knew... Ultimately, this provision is from the Lord. And so there's this, there's this weight of, well, God, what are you saying? And the, the trusting him, it's not just in the, I don't see the breakthrough. I trust you, though, Lord. It's also, here's breakthrough. Lord, I trust you. What are you doing? What are you saying? And so what happens from that moment? Well, I just stand up there, like, straight-faced the whole time. I never made an emotion. And people thought I was, like, not grateful. <laughs> but what happens is the room goes into this big celebratory worship song, and I just kneel right here and weep because of all these things that God had been speaking, and I just couldn't believe it. The next day or two, I send a voice message to our lead pastor. I say, Tyler, I'm in a pickle. I know that you would never ask me to do this, but I know that I need to give 10% of this to the church. If I do that right now, I will still have $8,000 of student loans for at least the next year for us to pay it off. And people might be sad. I really wouldn't want people to know, and so I would feel the need to keep it a secret. The other option is I can pay off our loans and honor this gift, but then it will take me a year to tithe on top of our normal tithe this extra eight $5,000. And he was uncomfortably like, you don't have to do that, but yeah, pay off the loans. But you don't have, you know. And so for the next year, we're not in Houston. We're not working corporate jobs. We're in College Station. I work for the church. I made $15 an hour. It's amazing. That was a big promotion from what I was making the first two years. Uh, and 
And we were just paying off tithe debt is all we did. We didn't save any money. Right after that tithe year, Mitchell invites us to pray about moving here to be a part of church planning. And I'm like, what? Within a couple months later, we get pregnant. I'm like, what? <laughs> and like, God is in a sense like, like we knew this provision was not just for our good, but it like has to be for his glory. And so we like gave this blessing to let's quit our jobs, move states, and plant a church. You know, let's, let's raise kids and make disciples of Jesus in our home. And, and let's continue to give generously. We had about six months where we could save after tithe debt, before medical bills and moving costs. And that was like the six months of so much fun for me. But that was it. But we knew that this was God and that, you know, we wanted to honor him with the breakthrough too. So bands, you guys can come on up. But here's the thing, guys. We had just a handful of months that we were able to save anything. And, and since moving here, we've not, like, I don't know if we've saved technically a dollar since we've moved here. Because um, kids are expensive, apparently. And, but what has also happened, it hasn't been even five years yet since that moment. But Meg and I have been able to give away basically about double the amount we received in the years following. And so we have continually been amazed at God's crazy, good, unexpected provision. But it's always been connected to, Lord, what are you saying? Simultaneously, I haven't had AC in my car for over a year. And we rent a house. And there are other things like, are you sure you're doing the most important thing with your dollars? I'm like, I am sure. I am definitely sure. And so we have consistently been challenged to trust God with our finances through radical generosity. We've consistently been challenged to thank God for his provision, even when it feels like not enough or feels like different than what we expected. And we've been consistently blown away by his abundant provision, which only further empowers us to deeper levels of trust and thankfulness. As we close, I want to circle it back to Mary in the Christmas story. We talked about her experiencing and treasuring the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of such a difficult childbirth. But what we didn't know is that within the next two years, some important people from a nation she's never heard are going to show up with gold, frankincense, and myrrh and say, here you go. That was not part of what Gabriel promised Mary. There was no inclination that that crazy financial breakthrough was going to come, but her life was changed in a moment through these extravagant gifts randomly given to her. So, but what's cool is if Mary had felt betrayed by God in her humility, you know, if she had clung to how painful of a childbirth experience that was, when that gift showed up, it probably would have felt more like, it's about time, Lord. doesn't even get rid of the bitterness but because she chose to thank God in the lack that gift was able to be the full blessing that God wanted it to be and so that's what I want to encourage us with today that God is faithful to provide our needs it won't always meet all of our wants but if we can thank him and trust him 
that that it'll empower us to thank him and trust him, to thank him and trust him. And that's what we want for our hearts, posture before the Lord, is thankfulness, trust, thankfulness, trust. And who knows how he might also blow you away with his abundant financial provision. But the thankfulness and trust in the in-between can't be conditional on what he'll do later because it'll ruin the experience of later. And we want that to empower our thankfulness and trust even further. So I'm going to pray real quick, and we are just going to worship God together. Feel free to stand up. We're going to spend some time thanking him and trusting him. That's what we want to do with our lives. And so, Jesus, I thank you that you are a great provider. I thank you that you do provide our needs. And, God, we just choose to trust you in this place.